I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today I'm talking to Vincent and Jane Sim, who lead the church in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. They discuss their 30 years in ministry, their early experiences as young Christians in the Singapore and Kuala Lumpur churches, and how those small mission plantings have grown to thousands of disciples in many churches throughout the region. They talk about all of the family they've been able to reach for Christ and how they've been able to get back on their feet after being knocked down. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Happy 2024. I know, I know. I, t- I took a little break this year. I know it's been a while since my last episode. I wanted to take a rest and also to help get the church here in Tucson off the ground. So here's what's happening with me. First of all, Pam and I took a week off over the Christmas holiday and we went scuba diving. So we went diving for about five days in Belize, which is just south of Mexico. It's, a, it's a, actually an English-speaking colony originally. And it was beautiful. There's just a beautiful reef off the island where we were diving. And on the last day of our diving, it was really crazy. We were down about 95 feet in this like canyon. It was almost like a cave, about 150 feet long. And there were sharks all over the place. And when we're coming out, Pam signaled to me and her mask had, the strap had broken. And so I went over there and tried to get it reattached, but I couldn't do it. So I signaled the dive master and he came over. Then he told Pam, he said, hey, we're going to, we're going to switch masks. And so he gave her his mask and he took her mask. And the thing I was so impressed was Pam was so calm. I mean, at 95 feet down, you you can't just go straight to the surface. You know, there's you can get decompression sickness. And she was just really calm and was able to take off her mask, you know, and then give it to him and then put on his mask. So it worked out great. We had a little excitement there. Let's just say we made a memory. Also, our son James just started dating a wonderful sister from Boston. And her name is Alex. So that's brought us a lot of joy recently. Last week, we had a great service at church, and it was great. I had like three couples visit church, and I was so fired up. It was one of those you know, problems like, how do I talk to all three of them at the same time? Couldn't do it. But in any case, one of them was a couple who last year had sold us a used car. We met them through a used car you know, Craigslist. Of course, we share our faith everywhere we go and invite them to church. And they said, oh, yeah, we want to come. And, you know, you, sometimes you give an invitation, you go, they're never going to come, but they came the next day. And so it was really awesome. They loved it. And they said, hey, we're going away for a year to France, but when we come back, we're going to go to church. And so I'm like thinking, okay, yeah, okay, that's great. They just showed up again this last Sunday after a year of living in France, and they loved it. So pray for them to become disciples. I was, that was a real boost to my faith. It's really encouraging. We have a big neighbor day service this coming Sunday, 
and we're having a barbecue after church, so that's going to be a great time. I came away from the CLIMB conference last December determined, you know, a lot of lessons I learned, but one of those was to imitate Dave Bliley's example and his ideas from his leadership of the Auckland New Zealand Church. And he had a great class. I hope you listened to it. And so each month we're having family-friendly events to bring our friends to. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how that helps our church and just helps it to grow. Our theme for our church is Ephesians 4.16 from the New Living Translation, where it just talks about every part doing its special work to build the church so that it's growing, healthy, and full of love. And I just thought, that's such a, that's what I want. You know, I want a growing church that's healthy and full of love. And so that's what we're shooting for this year in 2024. Speaking of the CLIMB conference, all of the lessons have been videotaped and posted thanks to Joel Nagel. And so you can find them on YouTube. I hope you have a great year in 2024. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to hearing how you're doing. So please pray for us in Tucson, and I'll pray for you as well. You can always reach me at rob at robskinner.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Vincent and Jane, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob, for having us. I'm so happy for you to join the program. We knew each other back when I was living in Asia, and you know we've, we'd go to meetings together in different places like Bali or else Cebu or you know the Philippines, different places. But it's nice to be able to reconnect. Well, thank you very much for having us. It's certainly a privilege to be on the Rob Skinner podcast. <laughs> yes, we are so excited. What a privilege to be here. How'd you guys become Christians? Uh, well, for me, it was back in uh, 1989. Uh, 1989, I was still in college in Singapore. I'm from Malaysia, so my dad had sent me to Singapore to study. I was just about 17 years old. Um, I was a believer. I was a Christian. But I, was, I had become somewhat disillusioned by my Christian life. I grew up a Catholic uh, but, you know, the desire to know God more brought me to other denominations as a teenager. And I was struggling in my faith then, desperately wanting my life uh, to be right with God. So I was invited to my first Bible talk. So I went, and I was so impressed by the way the parable of the sower, the popular Bible talk back then, I was so impressed by how, by the way it was explained that I thought, wow, this is so great. And I'm really learning some new stuff about the Bible. Started studying the Bible and I was baptized two weeks later. Wow. This was in February, 1989. It's interesting. You mentioned the parable of the sower. That's the Bible talk. I remember that was the turning point for me. I'd, I'd gone to Bible talks for a while for a semester and then I remember the the leader was leading the parable of the sower, and I thought, that's me. That I am like, what was it? The the second soil. I was I was just, you know, I'd be so right. excited and then I would like fall away and then come back and just up and down, just like a roller coaster. So that is really interesting because that's the one that really impacted me the most at the time. How about you, Jane? Well, I grew up uh, with Buddhist stroke Taoist and ancestral worship. So I have this huge 
Chinese altar in my living hall. And um, so I was, I was the eldest, so I helped my mom with all the, every time there's festivity, pre preparing for the altar worship and stuff like that. So I was feeling very fatigued, you know, just, every, you know, so often all, we have to present all this um, meat and vegetables and um, fruits. So I asked a lot of adults around me about God, why do we do that? And I never received any adequate answer. So, so oh well. Then uh, when I was 16 in Malaysia, we call it secondary four, my physics teacher it, um, wanted to share the gospel with me. So, and uh, she's very, very passionate. So she asked me, would you come early to my lab every morning before school starts and I will share half an hour the Bible with you? And I say, yeah, why not? So I remember her showing me the gospel about God, Jesus, sin, salvation. So I was really interested. And I, I, was, I followed her to a church and I was secretly baptized because that will really cause a riot in my family. So I secretly baptized. But then my faith didn't grow very much. You mm -hmm. know, it was just a lot of hype. And so since then, I drifted in and out of churches, you know, just like what you explained, you know, it didn't last. So, so after that, I graduated and I remember feeling so miserable one uh, weekend and I felt so lost and I know that's God, but I don't feel anything and I don't feel I'm getting anywhere. So I prayed to God and say, God, I can't deny that you are real, but lead me to a church that I will really practice and know your word and grow in that church. And three days later, mm -hmm. a sister from the church invited me to church. So that Sunday, I went to church and I was so excited when they offered to study Bible with me. So I, was, I studied every day and for six days. On the seventh day, I was baptized. Wow. <laughs> that was in 1992. I was 23 years old. Was this in Kuala Lumpur or was this in Singapore? In Kuala Lumpur. Okay. Yeah, the church had started then. So I was, um, you know, it was a small church. So I was, you know, part of that small church then. That's awesome. That's It's interesting how small church plantings, the early converts become so influential. They they really form the the core of the church, the future church. Don't you don't you find that to be true? Yes. Yeah, you know the early church for Kuala Lumpur was I had the most fun. I mean, it was just incredible. You know, we we were always together. You know. Yeah. We had the brothers flat, the sisters <laughs> flat, and we had many sleepovers. That's and, it's it's crazy, you know, like the brothers and I, we we didn't have much, right? We all slept on the floor, uh, you know, pillows get passed around. But we we were always together. We shared our faith. We have devotional every single morning. That's right. That we would go out sharing our faith. We would take breaks in between, come together to share good news, and then go again. And then we would play games and just incredible. How did you guys meet? How'd you guys get married? 
So I was already on the mission team to KL when we started in April of 1991. I was 19, still in college. Uh, I was trying to get my Bible talk going. I believe it was a midweek service. Uh, this was a, a year after the, the team had already started. I think it was on a Wednesday night and uh, Jane was studying the Bible and she was outside a building where we were meeting, probably uh, waiting for our sister at that time. And I had not met her before. So that was my first time. I was coming probably from college for midweek service. But I distinctly remember how smitten I was by her standing there. <laughs> for me, I think it was love at first sight. But then I realized she was already working and I was still in college. You know, and she's a few years my senior. And I actually remember thinking, oh, there's no way this would happen. <laughs> but, you know, well, God happened. November 2023, we've been married for 25 years. Wow. Okay, so you guys got yeah. married. When did you, how long, when did you guys get married? 1998. Oh, it took you guys a November while. November 1998. Yeah. Okay, yeah, 25 years. Didn't happen immediately. You guys met in 91 and oh, then you got married. Oh. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Well, I had to finish college. <laughs> <laughs> and many things happened in between us, you know, then. What, what yeah, and we did it other people for a while. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, that didn't work out. You know, so we, so it's actually a pretty cool story to me because, you know, we both broke up and then somehow we ended up together and both of our exes actually ended up together. Oh, they, oh, really? Okay. So it all worked yeah. out happily, easily in the end. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Great couple, you know, we've known it for a long time. It's amazing how God worked it out. That's cool. That's great. So 25 years, that's goes by fast. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more. You you were converted in the church in Singapore. That was planted by John and Karen right. Louie back in the day, right? That's right. 89, yeah. right around there? 88? 88. 88 is, is when I think the church began, yeah. Okay, so you were converted right at the beginning of that church. You were like one of the early converts. Right, like maybe a, a year after, yeah. Okay, so tell me about those early days in Singapore. What was it like? to be converted on a mission team like that? Well, uh, I would say that the early days of the Singapore church, uh, something that I'll never forget. Um, pretty much like, you know, what I shared about the early days of the KL church, except that I was a young Christian in the church in Singapore. Um, church was always the highlight of my week. Uh, I was obviously in college, uh, you know, um, and I'll always be very grateful for how the Singapore church, <clears throat> God used the Singapore church to build the foundation of my faith. Because what I remember very clearly is that what drew me to our church then was how strong the conviction was about being a disciple of Jesus and carrying out his great commission. I, I remember that we shed our faith everywhere. We didn't have our building then. So we would move from one place to another every few months for service. Um, you know, and so it was just great. You know, we moved from places to places, but that never affected our commitment. Once our church even had our service in a cinema <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Um, 
Yeah, you know, because I think Singapore, pretty much like Malaysia, you know, you can't really rent facilities from schools for religious purposes. It's pretty sensitive. So we ended up in a cinema uh, and we had to meet at 8 a.m. in the morning <laughs> because we had to play out before the, their first movie showing, you know, just after our service. And one of the brothers would have to come with his pickup truck every morning, every Sunday morning, probably at 6.37 to pick up the speakers and the sound system for the service every single week because the cinema did not provide us with a storage space. I mean, that was the level of commitment and love for God and his church. I mean, it was, it was pretty awesome. So I, I got to stay with the brothers in a, in a brother's flat. So fellowship, we witness baptisms all the time. Um, but the coolest part to me was Sunday services because every Sunday without fail, I would see brothers and sisters waiting at different train stations or buildings around the Sunday service venue, waiting for our friends to show up to bring them to church. Wow. So, you know, I would go and I would, I would wait for my friend, maybe at the train station. And inevitably, I would bump into brothers and sisters who are also waiting in the same location for their friends to show up. It was really a sight to behold. Wow. This And this was before cell phones. So you just this was before cell phones. Yeah, so you, that's you right. would just hope that they would show up. And that's right. Stick the only thing that we 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 would get, you know, is a land landlines, right? I mean, phone numbers, landlines, and so you know, we would call them beforehand. We would make the follow up calls, and then they would say, okay, you know, some of them would say we'll show up, and they will all wait. And you know, it, it's fun. You know, we would encourage each other because sometimes our friends won't show, and then we'll. Just give each other a high five. It's all right, bro. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go worship God. Uh, but God really used John and Karen to build an incredible church then. Uh, raised up amazing leaders, many of whom are still serving today. Yeah. What, what As a I, young Christian, I remember. Sorry. What I find amazing is that John John was working a full-time job as a, an engineer, I believe. Was yeah, that would be... A few years later, okay, when so, he had problems with the visa. I see. Okay, so initially he was able to be just full-time. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I would say maybe in the first uh, two, three years, perhaps. Yeah, but later on, John actually had to work as an engineer just so that he could stay uh, in Singapore to lead the church. But I tell you, it was still amazing. Um Every disciple I remember at that time were, were always a buzz with helping someone become a Christian, becoming fruitful, as we would say, right? We would have friends at Bible talks, midweek services, Sunday services. We were always talking about, you know, the brother's flat had one phone. We would take turns to make follow-up calls, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the motto of discipleship that we learned from way back then, a disciple is someone who will give up everything, go do anything, go anywhere for Jesus. You know, that stayed with me for a very long time, which was probably the, the reason why I left for the KL Church, mm. KL Mission Team. Yeah. Uh, when I left for the KL Mission Team in 1991, I think the Singapore Church was baptizing like 50 people a month. Wow. It was crazy. John and Karen's apartment was like the train station. <laughs> People were coming and going every day. 
to study the Bible, to get baptized. I actually moved into their to their home without actually telling them, you know, I, because you know John had a a younger brother, and we were both about the same age. We were studying for our major exam together, so I thought, you know, let's do it together. So I actually moved there, and uh, so both of us were there. And back in the days, you know, when only brothers would baptize, sisters would come during the day to baptize, you know, other sisters, other women. The two of us being the only brothers, we would take turns baptizing the sisters. And there were so many baptisms. Our short pants, you know, that we wear, we didn't have time to dry them. <laughs> we literally hang them by the window. And then the next baptism would come. And then we will go again. It was, it was amazing. Wow. It was awesome. The early days were awesome. What What do you think it was about that time? What What was going on that created that kind of culture, that kind of atmosphere, that kind of expectation? I think, for me, um, the genuine love that I felt, I think. We really love one another. We cared. And we were very motivated by the word of God. I think the foundation of the church was built on just loving God, mm. loving one another, something very simple. And we didn't know a lot. We didn't have so much knowledge. But whatever we knew, we would always try to put into practice, you know. So the relationship, the closeness, um, the togetherness was just amazing. Um, we worked hard together. We played hard. We would go on dates just about every other week. Um, so church was our family. Church mm. was our family. So how did you end up on the, the KL mission team, the Kuala Lumpur mission team? Well, that one, I have to blame John Louis for that. <laughs> you know, I had just, um, uh, that at a time, I just finished my pre-U. We call it a pre-U. I think you call it advanced placement program in the States or something. So I was waiting to go to my dream university uh, in Singapore, the NUS, the National University of Singapore. It was the day after a midweek service uh, back then we would collect our contribution in cash and then we would have the money counted by a person in charge or two persons. And then we would then bring the money <clears throat> to the church administrator for him to then bring the money to the bank to bank it in. I mean, thank goodness we don't do that anymore, right? It's just not safe. And now it's all money transfer. So I happen to be the guy in charge of bringing the money to the admin guy the next day because it was my my term break so john was there talking to the future kl mission team leader then and apparently they were discussing about a shortage of brothers <laughs> on the team they didn't have enough brothers so they were brainstorming about who else to go so you know well as you as you can imagine i happen to be the guy in charge of my sector's contribution that week. And it wasn't even something I did on a regular basis. And then John Louis happened to be there. So I saw them and I, you know, I was fired up. I said hi to both of them. 
And John asks, you're from Malaysia, aren't you? <laughs> and I probably said, yes. <laughs> and the rest is history. Next thing I know, I was on a mission team to Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> I was handing in contribution, bro. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, but you were, so when you went to Singapore, you were still in high school when you became a Christian. You weren't even in college. I had just finished high school. Okay. And I was about to go to my college. Yes. I see. So I was about to go to university. You were just getting ready to go. You hadn't, hadn't started college at that time. Yeah. So I ended up studying in a college in Kuala Lumpur. I see. Okay, so then you went to school yeah. in Kuala Lumpur. That's and, right. And that's where you're originally from? Are you from that city? I'm actually from a small town up north of Malaysia. Okay. Kuala Lumpur is like in the middle of the peninsula Malaysia, so I'm not from there. Okay. But I'm from a town. Let me let me ask you this. Like, for you and Jane, what, what language is spoken in Malaysia? So the the national language is Malay. So Malay language. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the language of uh, that they that's the official language. Um, you know, in the government sectors and all that, uh, because the Malay population in Malaysia is the largest. It's about seventy to seventy five percent. The Chinese population is only about twenty percent. And then the rest are Indians and other indigenous groups. Okay. So, so, so John, Malay language is our main language. Okay. So John, isn't John from Malaysia also? John? John is, John is from Malaysia as well. Okay. So, so when we go to school, we would, we would be taught many subjects in Bahasa Melayu, which is Malay. But then, you know, we also have the English as the second language. And then there's our mother tongue as well. And as Chinese, we are we Malaysian Chinese, so we speak our mother tongue. And okay. yeah. Okay, so when you and Jane are by yourselves and you're cooking dinner, what language are you speaking to each other in? <laughs> Unfortunately, we are not very good Chinese, so <laughs> we actually communicate in English. But I I communicate uh in uh, Cantonese, other dialects with my uh, extended family. Like, um, so there's Mandarin, Cantonese, and Hakka. So, yeah, we there's many dialects as Chinese. My it's- wife is actually a lot better at languages than I am. So <laughs> she speaks the Chinese dialects a lot better. So my mother tongue is Hokkien, which is another Chinese dialect. That's the language that I use to communicate with my dad. Mm-hmm. Wow. So with Jane and I, we communicate in English. <laughs> Because that's the only way she can understand me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when you're preaching on Sunday, I know I'm running ahead of myself. Which language are you preaching in? So our main service is actually English. But we actually have a ministry for the Chinese speaking, the Chinese ministry. So on Sunday, yeah. we have uh, the translation uh, they u- using their headphones. There'll be translator translating to the Chinese speaking people. Yeah. So all of our slides mm. will have English and Mandarin and Mandarin. Wow. Always, but not Malay. Not Malay, um, because 
you know, for for the Indians who are part of our congregation, they speak English. Um, for those who are more Chinese educated, mm. so we put the Mandarin, we put the Mandarin verses. We have English words translated into Mandarin on the slides. Okay, so can you kind of give a, a brief history of? Where the you know how big the church planting was in KL and how it's grown since that time and kind of the state of the the Malaysian churches now, right? Um, since ninety one, I think yeah, I think we started with just sixteen people on the mission team. So back then there was a church in uh, JB. JB is a city that is just right next to Singapore, and that was, um, so there was a small church there, but KL became the, the main church that was planted in 1991. So 16, we have about 500 disciples in Malaysia wow. today, spread over seven churches. Um, Kuala Lumpur is the capital, and this is where our main church is. Mm -hmm. So Kuala Lumpur oversees the other churches in Malaysia. Okay, so Malaysia split. You've got like a eastern eastern part that's nearly as big. It's over, you know, attached to. Oh, I don't. I don't even know where near Brunei. Yeah, the eastern part of Malaysia is is on the island of Borneo. Mm. So Borneo is like the third largest island in the world, and that island is set by three countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. So Brunei occupies a very small portion of uh, the Borneo Island. And I would say maybe two-thirds of the island is taken up by Indonesia. So Malaysia is the top part, top part Sarawak and Sabah. Okay. And are there churches over there? We have a church in Kuching, Sarawak. Okay. And wow. uh, what is so cool is that our minister over there, uh, Stephen George, Stephen and Lee Kian George, they are now uh, reaching out to an indigenous group of people, one of the largest indigenous group people called the Iban, the Iban people, the Iban tribe. So they have been having weekly devotionals with a group of them from one of the Iban village. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that's a long ways away from KL. I mean, that's a there's mm -hmm. a there's a lot of ocean between you and that island. Yeah. We are separated by about 400 miles. Mm. The peninsula of Malaysia and the Borneo Island is about 400 miles uh, by the South China Sea. So, so if you combine um I think somebody said that if you combine the peninsula of Malaysia with East Malaysia, which is on a Borneo we would roughly be the size of the state of New Mexico. I see. Okay. Yeah, we're not huge. Right. You know. And what's the what's the population of the country? It's about 32, 32 to 33 million. Okay. People. So, it's seven churches, 500 disciples. Did you ever think when you went on that mission team you're going to someday lead the church? No, I all I wanted to do was to study the Bible with people and you know maybe find a girlfriend and get, get a simple uh, life as a Christian, be father for God, have children. 
That's it. You live in a, a Muslim majority country. Seventy percent right. are, are Muslim. What's that like? Leading a church in in that kind of an environment. What are some of the challenges that you face? Right. Uh, Malaysia is actually a very interesting country because we are very multiracial and multi-religion. Um, the government, though it is mainly Muslim, the government always tries to be fair and considerate to the main religions of the country, which would be Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism. So all of us do get to observe holidays, like on Christmas Day, uh, Vesak Day for Buddhists, Diwali for Hindus, and so on and so forth. Um, well, I would say that one of the benefits, actually, being in a Muslim country is that the government, you know, being mainly, mainly Muslims, we actually have a good censorship board for things like advertisements and movies. <laughs> <laughs> So you don't have to worry about questionable scenes, you know, or yeah. advertisements in a country. So they actually do a very, very good job. There is a stringent law in our country <clears throat> against the conversion of Muslims. But apart from that, we actually we are actually allowed to serve God freely. So we actually have no problem studying the Bible with people in public. I mean, when we started a church, the main places where we, we, we when we where we would meet people for Bible study would be McDonald's, you know, and we would study the Bible freely in the public. Um, you know, we don't have public preaching. Um, but apart from that, we actually get to practice uh, Christianity freely. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about being in Malaysia. Do you, is there ethnic persecution? The fact that you're Chinese is... As an ethnic minority, is there persecution against the Chinese? Um, we did have a problem between the races, but this was many, many years ago. Yeah, I believe it was the 1950s, probably in the yeah. 1950s. 69. On 1969, there was a huge fight between uh, Malays and Chinese, and they were killing each other. Yeah. And I think since then, the government has been very, very, um, they come down hard on people who cause racial divide yeah. or who speak out against other religions. So it's not just people who speak out against uh, Islam or anything, uh, but even other religions like Christianity, Buddhism, I think they come down hard on that to protect the harmony of uh, the country. Right. I think from my experience, uh, because we are multi-racial uh, and religion, and um, even when I share my faith on the street and I accidentally invited a Muslim, and they are polite, they are not hostile or whatever, is it? and they will just let me know that I'm sorry, I'm Muslim. I say, oh, thank you, and I can move on. So it's not like very, very sensitive about that, and they are okay. So we I think the government has... Um, um, you know, uh, try to build a, a more tolerant attitude about towards each other practicing their religions. Got it. Got you it. know, growing up in our country, Rob, like, you know, we, um, some of us grew up in smaller towns. Mm. We call them kampongs, which is, which is a uh, direct tran translation is village. Yeah. 
So you have the Malays, the Chinese, and the Indians living in close quarters. Yes. They actually learn to speak each other's languages and slangs, communicate. And I tell you, in Malaysia, some of the most helpful people that you'll find on the road are the Muslims. I mean, I remember a time when a brother and I, we were in a ministry, single, this was many years ago, and our mode of transportation was a motorbike. Mm. And so I would ride behind him, he would be on a bike, and we were traveling on the highway one time, going from one study to another. And lo and behold, he ran out of gas. <laughs> so we were stuck on the highway, and the next patrol station was not nearby. So we were pushing along the highway. And along came this guy on a bigger bike, a Malay guy. He saw us and then he just stopped and he says that out of patrol, out of gas. We said, yeah. And then he just got off his bike and he was looking for something, you know, by the ditch or something. And he found some straws. And he siphoned patrol from his tank mm -hmm. into our tank. Wow. It was like watching MacGyver, MacGyver at work, you know? <laughs> and um, and so I was so stunned by that sight, right? Like he gave us free patrol, just enough for us to go to the next patrol station. And I reached out my hand to shake his hand and say, hey, thank you so much. And he said, no worries about it. It's okay. And he just left. Wow. So they're usually the ones who stop by the road to help you if you have a car breaking down. That's awesome. <clears throat> in growing the church to 500, you've had to face some big challenges. Can you share about a time when you were you were knocked down and what helped you to get back on your feet? You want to share first? Yes. I think there were many, many times like that, but I feel uh, for me, uh, it was in 2016 that uh, was one of the most challenging time I faced. In fact, I lost my heart for the ministry and I was contemplating uh, leaving the ministry after serving for 20 years. And I feel like I, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. Yes, I think uh, I felt the health challenges I was facing was real, but truth be said, I wasn't doing well emotionally and spiritually. So I think I got so busy doing ministry that um, I lost a connection with the calling, the purpose. And so I was on autopilot, just doing stuff. And I, I lost my joy and I felt like it's time to move on, to do something else. Mm -hmm. So, but I think God... Uh, allow that moment to happen because then physically I was I was not doing well. So I was given six months sabbatical to recuperate physically, but I know it's more than that. I, I needed time to just reconnect or disconnect with the ministry work and just and and look inside me and see what's what went wrong, what happened. Mm. So I I'm so grateful for the opportunity to pause because that was like a turning point for me. It was very difficult to disconnect with the work and focus on God and just my own brokenness. Mm. 
Mm. I think I was forced to look within. What was it that uh, made me feel this is not happening? This is not what I want. And I discovered a lot of um, unprocessed uh, losses that happened that I feel conveniently I push it aside because I didn't want to face up. So ministry work or being busy is a easy way out. So I have to face up to all these uh, losses, disappointment, pain, and so many things that it was. So it plunged me into a, a place of darkness, but I'm so grateful that I had the space to wrestle with God. I did tons of journaling, reflection, just, <laughs> just uh, praying. And I sought uh, help from some close trusted friends to walk with me because I needed to face up to a lot of painful things. Mm. So I think uh, just going through that uh, and seeing and experience God in a deeper way. So, I mean, I, we, I teach people the Bible, but I really experienced God during those times, just Him transforming me, giving me the comfort, heal me. And I think that was amazing and uh, at the end of my sabbatical I felt more passion for God and I rediscovered my calling and my purpose and I'm so so grateful for that what well, what was the turning point what what helped you to just kind of you know make make progress when you're you're feeling down there's there's issues that are undealt with was there a moment? Was there a, a, an insight from the scripture, or was there a, an epiphany that hit you that you go, "Oh boy, this is this is it"? I think it's all that, all mm -hmm. that you say, mm -hmm. um, facing up to things that I didn't want to face up to, like um, questions that I asked myself, or I think I have to process my losses. And then I have to have go to God to have the courage to talk about that with someone, and then um, and go for long walks and wrestling mm. with my own desire against God's desire. Mm. And I I felt like you know I've served you for twenty years. I think it's enough. I want to do something else. That's my desire. Mm -hmm. um, I, I felt like um, even the ministry work that I'm doing, I have questions like, but, you know, this is not what I'm called to do that. Why am I doing that? So I have to have to bring out all these questions, things that I harbored and caused some resentment in my heart and, uh, and address them, yeah. seek yeah. answer. So, so I would say there's a lot of fears that, have made me felt that I'm trying to avoid, but just facing up to it helped me to be freed. Mm, that's great. And be at peace. Vincent? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I just want to say that I'm very proud of my wife because I saw the notes that she made during the time when she was going through this period of reflection, journaling, and I thought, wow, I was just very blown away by the effort that she put in just to get better. For me personally, uh, obviously there were many times when I was knocked down, um, but I think the one, I, I remember the first time that 
really changed my perspective on ministry was back in 1997. I had been in the ministry for four years by then, but none of my ministries grew. You know, we would baptize, but then we would always have an equal number of people leaving. So I wasn't very good at obviously building church. So I came to the conclusion it was time to leave the ministry as well. I was convinced God had spoken, you know. I didn't have what it takes, not enough talent, not smart enough. So back then, my belief was if you sacrifice enough, if you are zealous enough, radical enough, then God will bless your ministry to grow. And since my ministries were not growing, it was time to say goodbye. So right about that time, John moved me to Singapore to rehabilitate. <laughs> so I was a young minister and I was in Penang and then I moved back to KL. So he moved me down to Singapore to, re you know, to recover. So when I was in Singapore, I had no ministry to oversee, only time to reflect, have my quiet time and just get close to God again. It really was a time when God had to purify my heart, my motives. Why did I want the ministries to grow? You know, was it for him? Because, you know, back then, um, I think I, you know, being, I think back then, because I was struggling with so much insecurities, I think I wanted the ministries to grow to cover up my insecurities. I wanted my place in the ministry to be validated by results. So I think God saw through all that and just felt like, you know, he needed to purify me. I think the second thing that I discovered was that God had to correct my false theology. I mean, believing that church growth was based on how much sacrifice, zeal, and how radical I was, was just wrong. I mean, this entire false theology was just based on performance. Like, you know, if I prove to God, you know, he should bless. But I think instead, God wanted me to go back to him. He wanted me to be reliant on him. He wanted me to trust him for what his word tells me, as opposed to all these other things that I was holding on to. That God is the one who makes things grow. And my job is simply to follow him, obey his direction. And so right after that, I, I when I got back my security in God, my relationship with God, God blessed me with one of my best years after that. Mm. My ministry grew. <laughs> that year, Jane became my girlfriend. Wow. And then she became my wife later that year. <laughs> <laughs> I asked her to be my girlfriend. A few months later, she was my wife, man. Wow. That's awesome. It's interesting how you have those low points and then God just opens up the door of blessing. Just It's like right around the corner. It's really amazing. Yes. Can, now, can you guys just give a quick overview of where you've been in the ministry since 91? So you're the KL mission team, then you went back to Singapore. Can you just give give a 60-second a, a review of where you've been? Yeah, so 1991, I came to KL. I wasn't in the ministry then. I was in a campus. And, um, <clears throat> and then 1994, I went into the ministry for the first time. 
and I was posted to Penang. So, you know, Penang is uh, right up north. And after Penang, I was brought back to Kuala Lumpur. And I went to a satellite church uh, near KL. Uh, I was in down south in JB, JB also for a while. Yeah. So, and then in 2012, we were asked to go down to Singapore to help lead the church for, and so we were there for seven years. So you led the church in Singapore for seven years? Yes. Wow. 2012 to 2018. That's crazy. Man, the church you're baptized in, you go back and lead. That must have been awesome. Um, it was, yeah, I mean, it was scary at first. <laughs> Singapore was a much bigger church, and we really struggled. Yeah. And so when we were asked by John and Karen, Harlem and Vanya supported the decision, our first answer was no. <laughs> you know? We have to be in Malaysia and all that. But then, you know, we spent a few months praying and uh, asking God to change our hearts if that was what he wanted us to do. Mm. And uh, yeah, you know, it was great seven years. You know, we love our time in Singapore. We look back and we absolutely believe it was God's will for us to be in Singapore Wow! at that time. That's, that's crazy. And so then 2019, you moved back to KL? Yeah. Yes. So we moved back in 2019. Okay. It's really interesting, the geography, because Singapore looks like it should just be a part of Malaysia. Singapore was part of Malaysia <laughs> yes. many, many years ago. <laughs> I mean, and it's... for political reasons, they were, separate, they were segregated from Malaysia, yeah. unfortunately. Hmm. We would be enjoying the Singapore dollar today, if not for that. <laughs> I mean, it's like tucked right in there. It's just crazy. It's right in there. So so obviously Singapore now is one of our closest neighbors, mm -hmm. but they were once part of us. So interesting. Okay. So what's it like when you think about your time in Kale, what's one of the things you're most proud about the church? Wow. I mean, there are, there are quite a few, mm -hmm. uh, you know. I think we have many disciples uh, who have served and are still serving since the 90s. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of. You know, Many of these Christians are so faithful. We have many lay leaders, um, especially during the time when we were in Singapore. Um, right about that time, we were just starting our youth ministry in Kuala Lumpur. And we have many lay leaders who stepped in to help us to build the youth ministry. Um, they help form the preteens. So our youth ministry is comprised of the preteens, the young teens and the teens ministry. Many of our seasoned, seasoned disciples became youth mentors, serve wholeheartedly year after year. Um, these are lay leaders. I think many of them have served even to today more than 10 years. They would get with the youths every Sunday before church, study the Bible with them. They would meet the youths on Saturdays for mm -hmm. the youth devotionals. They are, to me, they are the ones who are responsible for many of our kingdom kids who got baptized. And, and you know, so very, very proud of them. Um, we've gone through many ups and downs over the years together as a church. 
um, I still see that many of them love God and they love the church and they still try their best uh, to serve. And one of the challenges that we have faced as in Malaysia is that our economy, economy has not been good. Uh, currency has plummeted and many of them lost their income during the pandemic. Um, but I saw the disciples, many of them were willing to do whatever it took to provide for their families. Uh, like, I think you guys have Uber back in the uh, back in the States, but here we have Grab. So many of them became drivers, Grab drivers. They would bring their contribution to church, raise money for our building. Just see, you know, the disciples, in spite of the hard times, still determined to continue building the family of God. Uh, I would just wanted to uh, share about uh, what I'm proud of. The KL Church is the family culture that we have. Every Sunday before church, our church service starts at 10, very early, about 8 or even before that. We have different ministry that volunteer to uh, uh, sell breakfast so that the rest of us can enjoy the convenience of the convenience of not having to get food and that we'll meet before church, you know. And uh, so it's fun to see all the disciples come early, some to serve in Kids' Kingdom, in uh, uh, worship ministry, ushers, and they all come early, have breakfast. And for those who are not serving, we'll have uh, our discipleship times, mentoring time, hanging out, and some of the disciple kids just playing chess together, um, just having this vibrant uh, fellowship right before church. And then at 9.45, everybody will just clean up and then we move on to the worship hall. Then right after church, again, you know, Malaysian love to eat. Mm -hmm. We'll go for lunch together in our ministry, like the campus ministry or a small group, and just having friends along with us and just have this extended fellowship that has, um, you know, built that rapport with our friends. And our friends love it. And they love this family culture that we have, that there's a lot of food, fellowship, mm -hmm. and just building connection with each other. So before church, and then after church, um, yeah, I just, that's why I mentioned the family culture we have. When you look back, what's one of the most miraculous things you've witnessed? Well, that's a great question, uh, Rob. I think God has only done his work uh, in Malaysia as well. I can think of a few. Uh, one of the things that I'm very proud of the KL Church is that back in 1999, when Jane and I were, uh, were asked to lead the church, uh, Malaysia was still a developing nation. Actually, we still are a developing nation, third world, if you will. So we were given the challenge to be self-supporting the following year. So 1999, we started to lead. And I think we were given the challenge the following year that we need to become self-supporting because at that time, Kuala Lumpur was still receiving mission support from Singapore. And I remember, you know, you know, that feeling that it was such a daunting task. But I'll never forget how giving and generous the disciples uh, of the KL Church were. Everyone rose to the occasion, gave generously to our special missions, contribution, and then KL has gone on to become self-supporting. Uh, in fact, supporting two mission churches since then. If I'm not mistaken, I think KL was one of the first 
third world church at that time to be self-supporting back in the year 2000, 2001, around there. So to me, I think I was really, really proud of them. Um, of course, since then, you know, because we've planted other churches, uh, you know, other churches in the States, like the Pittsburgh Church, who has been so faithfully supporting the work in Malaysia for so many years, they sent us uh, mission support that goes to the mission churches, uh, not KL. Um, one of the greatest miracles I've seen is, is witness is how God giving us multi-generational conversions in many families. Disciples, having surviving parents baptized, then see their children grow up and be baptized. I think about someone like our sister, Lynn. Sister Lynn had been on three mission teams. She was on the original mission team to Singapore, and then to Kuala Lumpur, and then to the one in Penang. Wow. Totally faithful. She baptized both of her aging parents, both of whom have since gone back home to God, then raised two boys with her husband, Patrick, saw them baptized. Both boys are involved in the worship ministry with their father, Patrick, and one of them is getting married this year. Wow. The only thing left is to convince Lynn to start playing piano again so the entire family can be leading us in worship one day. <laughs> so multi-generational conversions. Um, I saw my grandmother. She was 90... 92 years old? Yeah, when I think she, she was 92. Yeah. She was suffering from dementia. She could not remember. Yeah. She could hold on to long-term memories, some long-term memories, but short-term was gone. I remember having a conversation with her one time and said that, hey, would you like, I said, Grandma, would you like to go to heaven? She said, of course, I want to go to heaven. And that's when we started studying the Bible with her. Uh, the sisters came and they studied the Bible in Hokkien, one of the Chinese dialects. I mean, I could not study the Bible in Hokkien to save anyone. I, I didn't have the words for baptism, for prayer. But the sister, we had a sister who could speak fluent Hokkien. And because of my grandmother's, you know, failing memory, they came up with a system. They printed out the scriptures in bowl, right? Put it in a folder and then give it to her. Then she'll have to refer to it every now and then and look. And, uh, and so she finished all the Bible studies and then came time to count the cost. And I was thinking, how is she going to remember the doctrines? <laughs> you know, there's just no way. But you will not believe this. When I counted the cost with her and I asked her, why does she want to get baptized? What's the purpose? Her answers were spot on. Yeah. Wow. She could remember why she needed to be baptized. Mm. And I remember my dad telling me, my dad, my dad is not a disciple, but he's very protective of his mother. And told me, Vincent, don't baptize your grandmother in the pool. Okay, it's going to be too cold for her. And, you know, all you need to do is just sprinkle some water on her. And so we prayed and uh, I waited for my, for my dad. So one day he left town. He went out station. He went out, out of town. And that's when we baptized my grandmother in the pool. I surrounded her with four people just to make sure that there were no accidents. Baptized her. She has since gone home to be with the Lord. Wow. Yeah. So I saw my grandmother, then my mom. And then, of course, we have baptized our three children. Wow. 
and I'm a cousin and and Jane. Yeah. I, I just want to add that this funny story about grandma, right? Because of her her short-term memory and long-term memory. So we prayed specifically for her to remember what she needed to remember so that she understood what she was studying while she was studying the Bible. So, so we plotted this baptism time where she will go to the pool and then we, uh, she will be baptized while my father-in-law was away. So right after all this counting the cost, she was still lucid, very clear-minded, which she, we, we know that that was God working. So after that she was baptized, she was her hair was wet, so we blow her hair, keep her kept her warm. She the next day she said, I did I go to a waterfall recently? I just remember <laughs> that, you know, I was wet. I think I went to waterfall. I mean, she, she was, could not remember her baptism. After that, <laughs> during that time, she was like, everything was intact. So I just thought that was so funny. We that's laughed a, over that's it. A, that's definitely yeah. a miracle right there. I know. Yeah. And I, I like what Vincent said, we are so grateful that uh, God just, you know, God uh, helped us to convert a lot of our family members. Mm. Um, you know, Vincent's grandma, his mom, his sister, and two of the nephews. Wow. And then my, my mom, uh, who used to persecute me, and my sister... Uh, both became disciples and um, my niece as well. So on Sunday, it's so fun to see that all our nephews and nieces and my children, they serve in Kids Kingdom together. There will be teachers and one of uh, our, our nephew will be uh, song leading, one of the main song leader in campus ministry. So it's just so inspiring to see how God um, just helping all these uh, our family members wow. uh, becoming believers of God. Mm. So another thing that I, I thought I want to share about uh, what God is working powerfully is in terms of Hope Worldwide Malaysia. I am so proud of the work that the team has done in Malaysia. You know, during the pandemic, it was a very tough time for all of us. But I think about all the marginalized community and their needs. How are we going to meet their needs? And I think that's where I appreciate the Hope Worldwide Malaysia team, uh, Derek, Katie, and the, and the whole Hope World, uh, Worldwide board. They are so um, faithful, prayerful, and they know that a lot of funding will be um, cut. And, and they felt the burden to not compromise meeting the needs of uh, the poor or the marginalized community. So they try to be creative, find new ways, connect with the donors. While they, are, they were doing all this thing, God just moved the hearts of many corporate donors to support Hope Worldwide. In fact, <clears throat> Rob, I must tell you that Hope received the highest amount of funding during pandemic. Wow. Not before, during pandemic. And, um, you know, all the corporate were the one who reached out to Hope. Here we are, we are praying, God, please, please open doors. And God just brought the donors and reached out to us instead. So I thought that God really pulled through for us, for Hope Worldwide. Yeah, really proud of Hobo White Malaysia. 
since we began work in 2000, uh, we started with a free um, free clinic, a free um, medical clinic. Hope Worldwide Malaysia has always supported itself. We've always raised our own funds. Yeah. So very proud of the team. Can I share one more sure, go ahead. thing that God has done? Like, you know, I think one of the biggest, um, to us, miraculous news, um, you know, God has given us is that how he gave us a piece of land to build our church. Malaysia is primarily a Muslim country. Um, but, you know, as I shared early on, um, our government does allow other religions to practice freely. So, but sensitivity to other religions is something that is highly expected um, and practiced in our country. So which is why churches, religious groups are not allowed to, well, meet in schools, colleges, and they usually refrain from renting out their facilities to churches. So our options are usually limited to commercial buildings, which are quite pricey with their rentals. But over the years, God has obviously taken care of the KL Church. He has always provided affordable options. God has always somehow opened doors to new places. Uh, currently, we are meeting in UCSI University, which is strange because it is it is a college, right? It's, a, it's one of the top private universities in Malaysia. That's because the founder is a strong Christian mm. who gladly allowed us to meet on his campus for Sunday services. And then out of, the, out of the blue, a few years ago, when our board was considering putting down some money to buy over a factory lot, uh, you know, there are churches uh, out of desperation we, who have turned to these kinds of buildings for their services, but it's not always easy to get permits. These permits have to be renewed and very likely you can't, they may be revoked anytime. So, by the grace of God, that didn't pull through. You know, it didn't work out. That saved us. And then one of our sister, who is a town planner, got news that there is a piece of land that is already gazetted for non-Islamic religious purpose. So being the government of Malaysia, what they have to do is to still look out for the other religions. Mm -hmm. So with new residential areas, new developments, they would usually tell the developer to gather a piece of land for religious purpose. But in this case, it was for non-Islamic religious purpose. So she heard about it and quickly went and applied for that land. Then of course, seven other religious organizations came along, they heard about it. And so to be fair, so the government divided that two acre piece of land into four plots and gave us one piece. And this land is actually in a, a new upcoming development area, residential area, five minutes walk from the MRT, which is, um, what do you call it, subway for you guys? So, I mean, there's just no way we could have afforded a piece of land anywhere. So God is so gracious. To me, that's a miracle. Wow. Piece of land in a Muslim country. Just to build a church. So have you built the church? Where are you at in the construction? We are currently in a process. <clears throat> we, uh, you know, we have begun. And, you know, we have 
I think just about finished with the foundation. So the construction has begun. Okay, so what what's needed to finish it? Um, well, I think prayer, lots of prayer. You know, we would like to ask for, <laughs> like when our brothers and sisters around the world. What's the what's the date for completion? Do you have a completion date set for the church? Around two thousand twenty six. Early 2026. Okay. Or, or end of 2025. Yeah. So we really would ask, like to ask for everyone listening in to pray for our building to be completed, mm-hmm. um, to glorify God. Um, a few months ago, I was looking for a prayer app and I found one called Praise, spelled with a Y. They actually have a section for the app community to post any kinds of prayers. I actually put out a request for for building that app. So please pray specifically, um, especially for our building fund. Uh, We are still short of 1.6 million US dollars. We actually had our cost worked out before the pandemic. And uh, so we kept our cost very low before the pandemic. Unfortunately, since the pandemic, and since the war in Ukraine, our costs have gone up 45%. Wow. It's just crazy. Yeah, there was just nothing we could do about it. Mm. Um, but I just want to say that I'm very grateful that we have churches in the C region who are trying to help Malaysia. We have a few churches in Indonesia, uh, Thailand, Vietnam, who have uh, raised some money and sent to us. So we need all the help that we can get. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about about this. So how much is was the original quote on finishing the job? How much was the original project for? Um in ringgit, it was about 13.7 million ringgit. That would be that would be that would have been about 2.9 million US dollars. Okay. And and so you raised a bunch of money, but you're just you're just short a little bit. Yep. We shot a little bit of 1.6 million US dollars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All righty. So you okay. So if someone wanted to help, how could they do that? We actually have three donation portals set up. Uh and even and even a link for anyone who wants to request to get an official donation receipt from us. Um, should I just send the, this document to you, this PDF to you, Rob? Sure. We, How do I? We could put it in the show notes, and people could access right. it that way. What's I okay. mean? What's it going to mean to the church to have its own building? Oh. Um. Well, first of all, the only reason why we are even considering constructing a building is because. God gave us this piece of land and this land that was given to us can be used for only one purpose mm-hmm. and that is to build a church. I see. So we saw that as God's direction. Um, so obviously having a building is going to save us a lot in the future. Uh, we see this more as something that we need to pass down, set up and pass down to our next generation mm-hmm. because uh, costs have gone up a lot. And it will become increasingly difficult for us to 
find a hall that is affordable and one that comes with enough classrooms for all of our kids. So that's always been our challenge. Um, and I think in Malaysia, it also promotes trust. Like, you know, if you have a building of your own and you're a church for so long, you've been around for so long, it actually helps people to, um, you know, have more faith in your organization. Got it, got it. The building will also be the center for hope. Mm. It's also where we're going to have uh, a lot of our programs, run a lot of our programs for hope. So it'll help us a lot. How many people will it seat? Well, we want to build for the future. So the main hall sits about 700 old people. And then we have a mezzanine that can take up to maybe another 250. So it's close to 1,000. Close to 1,000. Okay. All right. We'll definitely be praying for that and we'll spread the Thank word. You. And so Thank you very uh, I'll, much. Le I'll leave Thank the you. portal, the um, hyperlink in the show notes so people can cl click on it directly. Thank you. In closing, what advice would you guys give to a person who wants to make this life count? Um, big question, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can share about perhaps what we have gone through ourselves and what we have learned. And to me, I think um, what has been the greatest help to us regardless of crisis, persecution, or troubles that we may go through as a disciple, for me, has been to understand and accept God's purpose for my life. Um, I used to be motivated by a lot of things, by ambition, you know, by the drive to achieve and stuff like that. But always, what helps me, what I always come back to this, is that when we believe that we are put here by God to fulfill his purpose, his mission, it changes how we see difficulties or challenges that may come our way. So for me personally, if I believe I'm doing what I'm doing because of God, then I will also accept the troubles that come with God's calling. And that really helped me to change my mindset mm -hmm. because my questions change from, why is this happening to me to what is God trying to teach me mm -hmm. or what does God want me to grow in through this? So that has always helped me to find the strength to carry on. That's fantastic. Cause you know, God's calling for all of us is to become like his son, right. Jesus, right? Not just in how we act, but in the thoughts and attitudes of our minds which is really tough, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. That means that the way we've been brought up to think and the attitude that we naturally carry have to grow and have to change. Mm. So if we suffer persecution, we suffer injustice, unfairness, we can either continue to see them from the world's perspective or, or fight for our idea of justice. So, and the questions that I the the hard question that I've learned to ask is how how did Jesus see the injustice done to him? Do I handle it like Jesus? Because naturally I don't. It's hard. Mm. And when you start to think uh, of doing something you you know that you believe in, it becomes easier. So 
And if God has called me to do this, then I, I don't have a choice. My job is to listen and obey. And I struggle against that. But after many years of struggling, obviously it helps. Uh, it helps to change my attitude, my thinking. Maybe God will explain it all to me one day when I get right. home. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's so interesting you say that because you think about Romans chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 1. It, it talks a lot about how, you know, it talks about all the blessings. It talks about all the amazing gifts that were given. But Paul always throws in there, if we endure the suffering that accompanies it. Like there's right. always a section in there about going through imitating Christ's suffering and, and enduring. And it's like, they're never separated. You know, you, you want to just kind of yes. cut those parts out and just stick to the blessings, but they're always, yes. it's always connected. <laughs> and I, I totally agree. I just, I've been studying that out recently too. And it's like, there's, that's part of knowing Jesus is, is, is taking on the suffering that he endured. And it's like the least desirable part of, of what I want as a Christian. You know, it's like, I want to run from those things. I want to view that as like a mistake or an exception. And, and yet what I hear you saying is that just, you know, like you said, don't ask why, just ask what is God teaching me? And I think that's a, that's a great, great change of perspective. So that, thank you for sharing yeah. that. Jane? For me, for most part of my life, I allowed fear to stop me from living a life of impact. I think having the opportunity, the, the turning point in 2016, having the chance to reflect and process my brokenness helped me to shift my perspective as well. Mm. Life becomes fulfilling when I could use my brokenness um, to help other women mm. put pieces of their lives together. And I find it's very, very exciting. Um, God has shown me that he has no problem using imperfect people like me to do his work. So I see that uh, all this that I went through, I can connect and leave an impact and help other women to see God in their circumstances. So I believe that's how he sees each of us. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. It's Thank been you so such, much. So much fun just talking with you. I know. It's just it's a it's a real pleasure to get to know you better. I've known you from afar and you know, the thing that really impresses me is your longevity, your faithfulness over the decades. And just, you know, I, I remember you, Vincent, as a very tall and skinny young man, you know, back in the <laughs> 90s. And <laughs> not a lot has changed, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and just to see your passion and zeal, you know, now it's it's awesome. It's a great example. So all the best to you. I'll be praying that that money flows your way and that God opens the door. I'm sh I'm confident it will. Thank you. But all the best Thank to you, you and the church there. And I'll be praying that God will lead our paths to cross soon. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. Come and visit us in Malaysia. I'd love that. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Here's how you can help support the program. First of all, hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it. Secondly, read and review one of my books, either How to Plant and Grow a Church or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. 
it's easy to find them. Just go to amazon.com, type in Rob Skinner, and you'll see my books pop up right there. Finally, you can support the Rob Skinner podcast with a gift. The link is in the show notes. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.